0: 24 decided on the name Memphis, because the position of the town suggested that of ancient Memphis, on the Nile. In 1857, Memphis got her first railroad, the Memphis and Charleston connecting her with Charleston, South Carolina. About the time the road was completed, there were severe financial panics which held the city back. Also, there was trouble, as in so many other river towns, with hordes of gamblers and desperados, Judge J. P. Young, in his History of Memphis. Tells of an interesting episode of those times. There were two professional gamblers, father and son, of the name of Abel. The father shot a man in a saloon brawl, and soon after, the son committed a similar crime of violence. A great mob started to take the younger Abel out of jail and lynch him, but one firm citizen, addressing them from the balcony of the hotel, persuaded them to desist. Next day, however, there was a mass meeting to discuss the case of Abel at this meeting the hotheads prevailed, and Abel was taken from the jail by a mob of three thousand men, when the noose was around his neck, and he and his mother and sister were pleading that his life be spared, the same man who had previously prevented mob action, stepped boldly up, cut the rope from Abel's neck, and assisted him to fly, standing between him and the mob, fighting the mob off, and finally getting Abel back into the jail, when the mob stormed the jail, Furious at having been circumvented by a single man, the same powerful figure appeared at the jail door with a pistol, and, incredible though it seems, actually held the mob at bay until it finally dispersed. This man was Nathan Bedford Forrest, later the brilliant Confederate cavalry leader. Forrest and his wife are buried in Memphis, in a square called Forrest Park, under a fine equestrian monument, by C.H. Needhouse. Before the war, Forrest was a member of the slave-dealing firm of Forrest and Maples of Memphis, subjoined is a photographic reproduction of an advertisement of this firm, which appeared in the Memphis City Directory for 1855-6. Illustration, City Directory, 251 Forest and Maples, Slave Dealers, 87 Adams Street, between 2nd and 3rd, Memphis, Tennessee, have constantly on hand the best selected assortment of field hands, house servants and mechanics, at their Negro Mart, to be found in the city. They are daily receiving from Virginia, Kentucky and Missouri, fresh supplies of likely young Negroes, Negroes sold on commission, and the highest market price always paid for good stock. Their jail is capable of containing 300, and for comfort, neatness and safety, is the best arranged of any in the union. Persons wishing to purchase are invited to examine their stock before purchasing elsewhere. They have on hand at present, 50 likely young Negroes, comprising field hands, mechanics, house and body servants, and c. When the Civil War loom closed, sentiment in Memphis was divided, but at a call for troops for the Union, the state of Tennessee balked, and soon after it seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy. Many people believed, at that time, that if the entire South united, the North would not dare fight. When the war came, however, Memphis knew where she stood, it is said that no city of the same size 22.600 furnished so many men to the Confederate armies. In 1862, when the Union forces got control of the river to the north and the south of the city, it became evident that Memphis was likely to be taken. A fleet of Union gunboats came down and defeated the Confederate fleet in the river before the city, while the populace lined the banks and looked on. The city, being without military protection, then surrendered and was occupied by troops under Sherman, nor, with the exception of one period of a few hours duration, did it ever again come under Confederate control. That was when Forrest made his famous raid in 1864, an event which exhibited not only the dash and hardihood of that intrepid leader, but also his strategy and his sardonic humor. General A.J. Smith, with 14.000 Union soldiers was marching on the Great Grain District of Central Mississippi, and was forcing Forrest, who had but 3.500 men to the southward, unable to meet Smith's force on anything like equal terms. Forrest conceived the idea of making a run around the end and striking at Memphis, which was Smith's base, taking 1.500 picked men and horses. He executed a flanking movement overnight, and before Smith knew he was gone, came careering into Memphis at dawn at the head of 500 galloping, yelling men, many of them Memphis boys. There were some 7.00 Union troops in and about Memphis at this time, but they were surprised out of their slumbers, and made no effective resistance. The only part of Forrest's plan which miscarried was his scheme to capture three leading Union officers, who were then stationed in Memphis, General C. C. Washburn, S. A. Hurlbut, and R. P. Buckland, General Hurlbut's escape occurred by reason of the fact that instead of having passed aid the night at the old Gayoso Hotel, where he made his headquarters, he happened to be visiting a brother officer elsewhere. General Washburn was warned by a courier and made his escape in his night clothes and bare feet from the residence he occupied as headquarters, running down alleys to the river, and thence along under the bluff to the Union fortifications. Forrest's men found the general's papers, uniform, hat, boots and sword in his bedroom, and also found their Mrs. Washburn. The only things they failed to find were the general's nightshirt and the general himself. Who was inside it? General Buckland also avoided capture by the narrowest margin. The soldiers first went to the wrong house to look for him, that gave him time to escape. It is recorded that, later in the day, under a flag of truce, Forrest sent General Washburn his sword and clothing with a humorous message, informing him, at the same time, that he had 600 federal prisoners without shoes or clothing, and that he would like supplies for them. The supplies, we are told, were promptly forthcoming. Forrest waited till he was sure that news of the raid had been telegraphed to General Smith in the field. Then he cut the wires. Smith immediately came back toward Memphis with his army, which was what Forrest desired him to do. The Confederates then retired from the immediate vicinity of the city. Judge Young, in his history, reports that when General Hurlbut heard of the raid he exclaimed, there it goes again. They superseded me with Washburn because I could not keep Forrest out of West Tennessee, and Washburn cannot keep him out of his own bedroom. After the war there was corruption and carpetbag rule in Memphis, and Forrest was again to the fore, becoming Grand Wizard of the famous Ku Klux Klan, the mysterious secret organization designed to intimidate scalawags, carpetbaggers and Negroes, whose arrogance had become intolerable. General George W. Gordon prepared the oath and ritual for the Klan which was founded in the town of Pulaski, Giles County, Tennessee. General Forrest took the oath in 1866, in room 10 of the old Maxwell House, at Nashville. It is my belief that the Ku Klux Klan has been a good deal maligned. Many of its members were men of high type. I have been told, for instance, that one Southern gentleman who has since been in the cabinet of a President of the United States, was active in the Ku Klux I withhold his name because the purposes of the Ku Klux Klan, and the urgent need which called it into being, are not yet fully understood in the North, and for the further reason that depredations committed by other bodies were frequently charged to the Ku Klux, giving it a bad name. So far as I can discover the Ku Klux endeavored to avoid violence where it could be avoided, its aim seems to have been to frighten Negroes and bad whites into behaving themselves or going away, though sometimes. Of course. Bad characters had to be killed, it must be remembered that the ballot was denied former Confederate soldiers for quite a period after the war, that they were not allowed to possess firearms, and that, at the same time, Negro troops were quartered in the South. In many parts of the South the government and the courts were in the hands of third-rate Northerners Carpetbaggers who had come down to dominate the defeated section, and who used the scalawags disloyal Southern whites and Negroes for their own purposes. Obviously this was outrageous, and equally obviously, a proud people, even though defeated, could not endure it. The service performed by the Ku Klux Klan seems to have been comparable with that rendered by the vigilantes of early western days. Something had to be done and the Klan did it. In 1869 General Forrest ordered the Klan to disband, which it did, but owing to the fact that it was a secret organization, and that disguises had been used, it was an easy matter for mobs not actually associated with the Ku Klux, to assume its costume and commit outrages in its name. In writing of Raleigh I referred to the post-bellum activities of the Confederate cruiser Shenandoah. Captain Dabney M. Scales, a distinguished citizen of Memphis, was on the Shenandoah, born in Orange County, Virginia, in 1842. Captain Scales was appointed to the Naval Academy by L. Q. C. Lamar. He was a classmate of Captain Clark, later of the Oregon. When the war broke out, Young Scales was in his second year at the academy, but like most of the other southern cadets he resigned and offered his services to the south. When commissioned he was the youngest naval officer in the Confederate service. Eight months after the war was over, the Shenandoah was still cruising in the South Seas, looking for federal merchantmen. In January 1866, somewhere south of Australia, she overhauled the British Bark out on taking her for a Yankee man-o-war flying the British flag as a ruse. Young Scales was sent in command of a boarding party, and was informed by the skipper of the barricade that the civil war had terminated months and months ago. The Shenandoah then made for Liverpool. In the meantime a federal court had ruled that her officers were guilty of piracy a hanging offence. Naturally, they did not dare return to the United States. Young Scales went to Mexico and remained there two years before coming home. When the Spanish War came, Captain Scales volunteered and was made navigating officer of a naval vessel. At the time of our visit he was a practicing lawyer in Memphis, and was in command of company of the uniform Confederate veterans, a body of old heroes who go out every now and then and win the first prize for the best-drilled organization operating hardy's tactics. Another distinguished citizen of Memphis who has lively recollections of the Civil War, is the Right Reverend Thomas F. Gaylor. Episcopal Bishop of Tennessee, Bishop Baylor, who succeeded the famous Bishop Quinterd, is my ideal of everything an Episcopal Bishop or I might even say a Church of England Bishop ought to be. The Episcopal Church seems to me to have about it more style than most other churches, and an Episcopal Bishop ought not to look the ascetic. He ought to be well filled out, well dressed, well fed. He ought to have a distinguished appearance, a ruddy complexion, a good voice and a lot of what we call, humanness, including humor. All these qualities Bishop Gaylor has, in the Bishop's study, in Memphis, hangs the sword of his father, Major Frank M. Gaylor, who commanded the 33rd Mississippi Regiment. Major Gaylor was killed while giving a drink of water to a wounded brother officer, and that officer, though dying, directed a soldier to take the Major's sword and see that it reached Mrs. Gaylor, in Memphis, within the Union lines, a young woman a confederate spy, took the sword, and wearing it next her body, brought it through to Mrs. Gaylor, somehow or other it became known that the widow had her husband's sword, and as the possession of arms was prohibited to citizens, a corporal and guard were sent to the house to search for it, they found it between the mattresses of Mrs. Gayler's bed, and confiscated it, Mrs. Gayler then went with another lady to see General Washburn, her friend started a long harangue upon the injustice which had been done. But Mrs. Gaylor, seeing that the general was becoming impatient, broke in saying, General, soldiers came to my house and took away my dead husband's sword. I can't use it, nor can my little son. I want it back. You would want your boy to have your sword, wouldn't you? Of course I would, cried Washburn. Thank God for a woman who can say what she has to say, and be done with it. The sword was returned, in the spring of 1863. When Bishop Gaylor was a child of about seven years, he accompanied his mother on a journey by wagon from Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi. The only other member of the party was a lady who had driven in the same wagon from Jackson to Kentucky, to get the body of her brother, a Confederate soldier who had been killed there. The coffin containing the remains was carried in the wagon. When it was known in Memphis that Mrs. Gaylor was going through the lines, a great many people came to her with letters which they wished to send to friends. Mrs. Gaylor sold many of the letters into the clothing of the little boy. I remember it well, said the bishop. I felt like a mummy. Also one of Forrest's spies came with important papers, asking if she would undertake to deliver them. Only by very clever manipulation did Mrs. Gaylor get the papers through, for everything was carefully searched. After they had passed out of the northern lines they met one of Forrest's pickets. Mrs. Gaylor told him that she had papers for the general and before Long Forrest rode up with his staff and received them. Then the two women and the little boy, with their tragic burden in the wagon, drove along on their 200-mile journey, and later, when Jackson was bombarded, they were there, before the war Major Gaylor had been editor of the Memphis, Avalanche, a paper which was suppressed when the Union troops took the town. After the war the, Avalanche, was started up again, and had a stormy time of it, because it criticized a carpetbag judge who had come to Memphis, in 1889 the Avalanche was consolidated with the Appeal, another famous antebellum journal, surviving today in the Commercial Appeal, a strong newspaper, edited by one of the ablest journalists in the South, Mr. C.P.J. Mooney. When Memphis was captured the Appeal would have been suppressed, as the Avalanche was, had it been there. But when it became evident that Memphis would fall, Mr. S.C. Tuflater a well-known book publisher who was then connected with the Appeal packed up the press and other equipment and shipped them to Grenada, Mississippi, where Mr. B. F. Dill, editor of the paper, continued to bring it out. When Grenada was threatened, a few months later, Mr. Dill moved with his newspaper equipment to Birmingham, where for a second time he resumed publication. His next move was to Atlanta. There, when he could not get newsprint, he used wallpaper, or any sort of paper he could lay his hands on. When Sherman took Atlanta the appeal moved again this time to Columbus, Georgia, where, at last, it was captured, and its press destroyed, wherever it went it remained the Memphis Daily Appeal, with correspondence in all southern armies, no wonder a paper with such vitality as that, has survived and become great, poor Memphis, after the war she had reconstruction to contend with, after reconstruction, financial difficulties, after that, pestilence, in 1873. When the population of the city was about 40.000, and there had been a long period of hard times, yellow fever broke out, the condition of the city was exceedingly unsanitary, and after the pestilence had passed aid, was allowed to remain so, though at that time the origin of yellow fever was, of course, not known, and it was assumed that the disease resulted from lack of proper sanitation. In 1878 there was another yellow fever epidemic, The first case developed August 2nd, but the news was suppressed until the middle of the month, by which time a number of cases had come down. The day after the news became known 22 new cases were reported. Terror spread through the town. Hordes of people tried to flee at once. Families left their houses with the doors wide open and silver standing on the sideboards. People flocked to the trains, when they could not get seats they stood in the aisles or clambered onto the roofs of the cars, if they could not get in at car doors they climbed in through the windows, and sometimes, when the father of a family was refused admittance to a crowded car, he would force a way in for his wife and children at the pistols point. In the first week of the panic there were 1.500 cases, with an average of 10 deaths daily, in the next week. 3.000 cases with 50 deaths daily, and so on into September during which month there was an average of 8.000 to 10.000 cases with about 200 deaths a day. Not everyone fled, however, leading citizens remained, forming a relief committee, and some brave helpers came from outside. Thus the sick and needy were attended to, though of course many of the volunteers contracted the disease and perished. Added to the epidemic there was as so often happens in such circumstances, an outbreak of thievery and other crime, which had to be put down. It is related that in the height of the epidemic hardly anyone was seen upon the streets save an occasional nurse, doctor, or other member of the relief committee. Household pets starved to death or fled the city. Among the newspapers, the staffs were so reduced that only two or three men were left in each office. And in the case of the appeal, but one, that one Colonel J. M. Keating, the proprietor, who stuck to Memphis and for a time wrote, set up and printed the paper without assistance, feeling that refugees must have news from the city. The next year the epidemic came again, but in less violent form, there being, this time, but 2.000 cases. However the effect was cumulative. Memphis dropped from a city of nearly 50.000 to a one of 20.000 and the reputation of the place was such that a bill was proposed in Congress to purchase the ground on which the city stood and utterly destroy it as unfit for human habitation, stricken as she was. However, Memphis came back. A great campaign for sanitation was begun, city sewage disposal was installed, and after a few years, artesian wells were bored for a new water supply, and oh! As we now know, yellow fever does not come from the same sources as typhoid. Nevertheless the new sanitary measures did greatly reduce the city's death rate. Memphis, like all other cities, has her troubles now and then. But since the great pestilence there has never been a real disaster, the city has grown and thriven. Indeed, she had become so used to growing fast that when, in 1910, the federal census gave her but 131.000. She indignantly demanded a recount, for she had been talking to herself, and had convinced herself that she had a great many more than that number of inhabitants. However, the census was taken again, and the first count proved accurate. Chapter L Modern Memphis to be charmed by the social side of a city, yet to find little to admire in its physical aspect, is like knowing a brilliant and beautiful woman whose housekeeping is not of the neatest. If one were compelled to discuss such a woman, and wished to do so sympathetically but with truth, one might avoid brutal comment on the condition of her rooms by likening them to other rooms elsewhere, rooms which one knew to be untidy, but which the innocent listener might not understand to be so. By this device one may even appear to pay a compliment, while, in reality, indicating the grim truth. In such a case, I for example, might say that this supposititious lady's rooms reminded me of those I occupied on the second floor of the famous restaurant called Antoine's, in New Orleans, whereupon the reader, knowing the high reputation of Antoine's cuisine, and never having seen the apartments to which I referred, might assume an implication very favorable. Let me say, then, that Memphis reminds me of St. Louis, like Street Louis. Memphis has charming society, like Street Louis she has pretty girls. Like St. Louis she is hospitable, and without particularizing too much, I may say that her streets remind me of St. Louis streets, that many of her houses remind me of St. Louis houses, and that her levee, with its cobbled surface sloping down to the yellow, muddy Mississippi, the bridges in the distance, the strange-looking river steamers loading and unloading below, etc., 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 is much like the St. Louis levee, so if the reader happens to be unfamiliar with the physical appearance of St. Louis, he may, at all events, perceive that I have likened Memphis to a much larger city thus, it seems fair to suppose paying Memphis a handsome tribute, Memphis has a definite self-given advantage over St. Louis in possessing a pretty little park at the heart of the city, overlooking the river, also she has the advantage of lying to the east of the great stream, instead of to the west, so that, in late afternoon, When the sun splashes down into the mysterious deserted reaches of the Arkansas Flats, across the way, sending splatterings of furious color across the sky, one may seat oneself on a bench in the park and witness a stupendous natural masterpiece. A sunset over the sea can be no more wonderful than a sunset over this terrible, beautiful, inspiring, enigmatic domineering flood. Or one may see the sunset from the reading room of the Koshit Library with its fine bay window commanding the river almost as though it were the window of a pilot house. The koshet Library is only one of several free libraries in the city, their island for example, a free library in connection with the Goodwin Institute, an establishment having an endowment of half a million dollars, left to Memphis by the late William A. Goodwin. The Goodwin Institute provides courses of free lectures, by well-known persons, on a great variety of subjects. The library is designed to add to the educational work. Books are not, however, loaned, as they are from the Koshit Library, an institution to which I found myself returning more than once, now for a book. Now to a look at the interesting collection of mound builder relics contained in an upper room, now merely because it is a place of such reposeful hospitality that I like to make excuses to go back. The library, a Romanesque building of Michigan red sandstone, is by a southern architect but is in the style of Richardson, and is one of the few buildings in that style which I have ever liked. It was given to Memphis as a memorial to Frederick H. Cossett, by his three daughters, Mrs. A. D. Juilliard, Mrs. Thomas Stokes, and Mrs. Georgie Dodge, all of New York. Mr. Cossett was born in Granby, Connecticut, but as a young man moved south and in 1842 adopted Memphis as his home, residing there until 1861. At the outbreak of the Civil War he made an amicable division of his business with his partner, and removed to New York, where he resided until the time of his death, finding among his papers a memorandum indicating that he had intended to endow a library in Memphis. His daughters carried out his wish. Having already spoken of a number of Memphis interesting citizens, I find myself left with an ill-assorted trio of names yet to be mentioned, because, different as they are, Each of the three supplies a definite part of the character of the city. First, then, Memphis has the honor of possessing what not many of our cities possess, a man who stands high among the world's artist bookbinders. This gentleman is Mr. Otto Zahn, executive head of the publishing house of SC2 fan company. Mr. Zahn himself has done some famous bindings, and books bound by him are to be found in some of the finest private libraries in the land. Until a few years ago he conducted an art bindery in connection with the tooth company's business, but it was unprofitable and finally had to be given up. Second, to descend to a more popular form of art, but one from which the revenue was far more certain, Memphis has, in W.C. Handy, a Negro ragtime composer whose dance tunes are widely known. Among his compositions may be mentioned the Memphis Blues, the St. Louis Blues, Mr. Crump, and Joel Turner. Mr. Crump, is named in honor of a former mayor of Memphis who was ousted for refusing to enforce the prohibition law. Joe Turner, is the name of a Negro pianist who plays for Memphis to dance as Handy also does. Most of Handy's tunes are Negro, rags, in foxtrot time. And they are so effective that Memphis dances them generally in preference to the one step. My third celebrity is of a more astounding type. While in Memphis I called aboard the River Steamer Grand, and had a talk with Mrs. Nettie Johnson was captain of that craft. Someone told me that Mrs. Johnson was the only woman steamboat captain in the world, but she informed me that at Helena, Arkansas, there lives another Mrs. Johnson no relative of hers who follows the same calling. The steamer grand is almost entirely a Johnson family affair. Mrs. Johnson is captain, her husband. I.S. Johnson is pilot though Mrs. Johnson has, in addition to her master's license, a pilot's license, and often takes the wheel, her elder son. Emery, is clerk, Emery's wife is assistant clerk, while Arthur, the captain's younger son, is engineer, Russell Johnson, Mrs. Johnson's grandson, is the only member of the family I saw aboard the boat who does not take part in running it, Russell was five years old when I met him, but that was nearly a year ago, and by now he is probably chief steward, bosun, or ship's carpenter, the regular route of the Grand is from Memphis to Moon's Landing, on the Arkansas River. A round trip of 120 miles, with 30 landings. I asked Mrs. Johnson if she had ever been shipwrecked. Indeed she had. Her former ship, the Nettie Johnson, struck thin ice one night in the Arkansas River and went down. What did you do? I asked. I reached after an iron ring. She replied, and clung on up into the rigging. She went down about 438 meters and we stayed on her till daylight, then we all swam ashore. I tell you it was cold. There was icicles on my dress, my son Emery put his arms around me to keep me warm, and his clothes froze onto mine. How long a swim was it to shore? I asked. Oh. Put in her husband. It didn't amount to nothing. She was only swimming about two minutes. The statement, however, was repudiated by the captain. Two minutes. My foot. She flung back at her spouse. It was more than that. All right. Mrs. Johnson has done flood rescue work for the government. With the grand, in the spring previous to our visit she rescued sixty families from one plantation. Besides towing barge loads of provisions to various points on the Mississippi and Arkansas rivers, captaining and piloting a riverboat are clearly good for the health. Mrs. Johnson looks too young to be a grandmother. Her skin is clear. Her cheeks are rosy. Her brown eyes flash and twinkle. Her voice, somewhat hoarse from shouting commands, is deep and strong. And her laugh is like the hearty laugh of a big man. Are you a suffragist? I asked her. Not on your life, was her reply. Now, what do you want to talk like that for? Objected her husband. You know women ought to be allowed to vote. I don't think so. She returned firmly, that that her daughter-in-law, the assistant clerk of the grand, took up the cudgels. Of course they ought to vote. She insisted. You know you can do just as good as a man can do. Mumber, a separated Captain Nettie. Women ought to stay home and tend to their families. As you do, I suggested, mischievously. That's all right. She flung back. I stayed home and raised my family until it was big enough to do its own navigating. Then I started in steamboating. I had to have something to do. But the daughter-in-law did not intend to let the woman suffrage issue drop. Do you mean to say? She demanded of Captain Nettie. That you think women hadn't got as much sense as men? Sure I do. The captain tossed back. There never was a woman on earth that had as much sense as the men. Take it from me. That's so. I know what I'm talking about and that's more than a half of these other women do. Then, as it was about time for the grand to cast off, Captain Maddie terminated the interview by blowing the whistle, whereupon my companion and I went ashore. One of the best boats on the river is the Kate Adams and one of the most delightful today's outings I can imagine would be to make the round trip with her from Memphis to Arkansas City. But if I were seeking rest I should not take the trip at the time when it is taken by a score or more of Memphis young men and women, who, with their chaperones, and with handy to play their dance music, make the Kate Adams an extremely lively craft on one round trip each year, apropos of Arkansas. I am reminded that Memphis is not only the metropolis of Tennessee, but is the big city of Arkansas and Mississippi, as well. The Peabody Hotel in Memphis, a somewhat old-fashioned hostelry, is a sort of Arkansas political headquarters, and is sometimes humorously referred to as Peabody Township, Arkansas. It is also used to a considerable extent by Mississippi politicians, as well as by the local breed. The Peabody Grill has a considerable reputation for good cookery and the Peabody Bar, though it still looks like a bar, serves only soft drinks, which are dispensed by female bartenders. The Galloso Hotel, named for the Spanish governor who intruded upon Memphis territory for a time, stands where stood the old Galloso, which figured in for East's raid. The Gayoso made me think a little of the old Victoria, in New York, torn down some years ago. The newest hotel in town, at the time of our visit, was the Chixa an establishment having a large and rather flamboyant office, and considerably used, we were told, as a place for conventions, if I were to go again to Memphis I should have a room at the Paglioso and go to the Peabody for meals. The axis of the earth, which Oliver Wendell Holmes declared, sticks out visibly through the center of each and every town or city, sticks out in Memphis at Court Square which the good Red Baedeker dismisses briefly with the remark that it contains a bust of General Andrew Jackson and innumerable squirrels. This is not meant to indicate that the